You are listening to episode 385 of the GNU World Order. My name's Klaatu, and in this episode we're going to talk about SQLite, which is a great little database application. It's a, a fantastic sort of intro to databases if you are not used to working with databases outside of those horrible GUIs that you, you find every now and again on, on some you know, office suite or something like that. So that, that'll be interesting, I'm sure, to you. Um, and if you're used to using databases and have not used SQLite, which, I don't know, I f almost feel like that's probably not likely, but I guess everything's likely, really. So yeah, sure, that could happen. Then I think you might be interested in SQLite because it is a very low overhead kind of database. By which I mean you don't have to have a database server running even locally. It, it's it's all in the command and it's all in one file. Really beautiful little system. So we'll we'll take a look at that in this episode. And I imagine that will take most of the episode because it's um it's a database. You can't it, it's difficult to talk about databases in a very short amount of time. It is a complex concept and I don't want to shortchange it. So that's what we'll talk about this episode. Now, before we get to that, I want to talk about some listener feedback. And I've got uh, a fair amount. So the first one is from a friend of mine, Ice Cream 95 that is at IXN on, I don't know, um, some Mastodon server somewhere. And he is responding verbosely to the Chromebook, Chromium book episode. Lots of great information. I thought he might. I secretly figured he would. He has been doing amazing things with Chromebooks ever since I've known him, really. And honestly, hearing him, hearing from him on this topic sort of drives home the fact that I didn't get an ARM-based Chromebook. And it hurts. Because, I mean, you have to understand, for the first, for formative years of my life, I was not on x86. That was not an architecture that I was familiar with at all. I mean, I didn't, I didn't use my first x86 computer until, well, university. So, it, no, after university, after I, after I left university. So, yeah, I, I do miss it. And he sort of underscores it with this message, his first in, in many messages. He says, I just got a new Chromebook for a couple, a uh, couple of weeks ago for GPU driver development. And he links to, the Chromebook Lenovo Duet. He says, I'm still using Chrome OS as I haven't got a USB-C to A adapter, but already have built a new 5.10 kernel, uh, which took of, which took 13 minutes on the eight cores of the MT8183, which is the MediaTek uh, ARM system on a chip, a lot faster than 40 minutes on my old Chromebook. So definitely, definitely miss the RISC processor. I mean, not that my, it's, I'm not saying that my x86 Chromebook is not doing well by any means. I have no reason to believe it would be better on the MT8183, although knowing what I know about RISC, I bet it actually would be better with the MT8183. But mine was used, and that was one of the requirements. So that's, I'm on x86, nevertheless. Um, so anyway, he says, when questioning Chrome OS design decisions, it's important to remember that the prior priority is on security. Because of this, the Linux support uses a custom VM image, so the VM which is cr uh, cross VM, C R O S V M. A lot of the Chromebook um, sort of a specific applications start with C R and then something. So, for instance, C R O S V M uh, can be simpler and have a smaller attack service uh, surface. The V M image does not support root, but the Chronos user can manage LXD containers. ButterFS is used for the file system image. It's at slash home slash root slash something slash crow svm uh, slash something dot image or iimg though the host kernel doesn't have butterfs compiled in so it can't be directly mounted now that's funny um yeah and chronos is a user that you can access in developer mode and you can also usually affect it from what i can tell when you're building chromium os there are some options as to what chronos can can do when you're building Chromium OS. I've only built Chromium OS a couple of times now, so I'm, I haven't explored all of the, the different options. Okay, so he continues, file sharing uses 9p for Chrome OS to Linux sharing and SSHFS for the other direction. 9p for sharing on Chrome OS has the advantage that SSHD doesn't need to be running on the Chrome OS side and using SSHFS for sharing back into the the, the Linux VM means that the client is running as an ordinary user and can't expose files as set UID, etc. You can enable accelerated OpenGL through uh, vrgl by enabling Crostini GPU support in about colon flags. 
microphone support can be enabled in the Linux settings. By default, everything is mounted with no exec except for slash user slash local. So if you try installing your own executables, put them there. You can avoid the beeps on startup with control D. I'll try that. I'm not convinced. He says that. I'm not convinced. He, he could be right. He's probably right. Okay, anyway, he continues. He says to hard reboot, you can hit alt volume up R, which is useful as you can read the kernel logs before reboot. That's pretty cool. As slash sys fs pstore slash console dash ram oops dot zero. And he continues. He says Chrome OS uses its own audio server, which is called CRAS, crass. You can disable or enable it with sudo stop or start crass. I managed to get Jack D running from uh, from the Linux side, but NetJack couldn't see the Linux VM. Maybe it would work if I used the proper host name, penguin.linux.test, instead of localhost. I should also try Pipewire, which I've had good experience with on my old Chromebook, which runs Void Linux. Pipewire is aiming to be the replacement for both Jack and Pulse, and it provides its own libjack.so. He continues, the Android support is just in a container with no VM, Yet, there is a show all play folders in the file manager settings, so you can see what shared folders actually exist in the Android container. You can find the Android storage at home, root, whatever, android-data, data, useful for extracting files stored in Android apps. The actual root, though, is at slash opt slash google slash containers slash android slash rootfs slash root, but it's immutable unless you do tricks with mount dash dash bind. So that was just so much useful information to the point that I wish, I almost wish I could just get him to do like a guest episode of GNU World Order or something with all of that information because it's just so good. I mean, I guess he just did because I've just read his, his, all of his information. But wow, what a what a great amount of information. So that's that's a lot of stuff to explore at some point for me and for others. And um, I don't know, maybe I'll type up his his notes and put it in the show notes for, for later. Uh, and by type up, I mean copy and paste. So thank you very much, Ice Cream 95 That was really, really useful. And uh, now I guess the next bit of, I, I guess we'll call it listener feedback. It's not really. Uh, the, the next bit of listener feedback is, oh wait, no, actually, there is actual listener feedback. And this one is from Kevin, and he says, uh, what RPGs do you play? You mentioned it in your podcast, and now I'm curious. If you haven't heard of it, um, Champions of Regnum Online is an MMO out of Argentina with a native Linux client. I've been playing it on and off since 2008. So I, I've never heard of Champions of Regnum Online. It is interesting to hear about, um, but just to be clear, uh, I was not mentioning, I was not talking about MMOs in whatever episode it was that I mentioned RPGs. I was actually talking about tabletop pen and paper RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons. So that that was the context for that. MMOs online, no, MMOs, uh, video games, w- which are online because they're MMOs, uh, they, they they do, like, they interest me in, on a theoretical basis, but not in a real sense. I've, I, I've not really, I mean, I've been on various games before, like, I have tried them, but uh, video games, I'll, I'll be honest with you, they, they do not hold my interest, typically. There are a few that I'm, that I will get into. They're never MMOs. Um, they're always just sort of games that I can play on, on my computer alone. I, I, I tend to view video games as sort of a, a retreat, not a social event, so it's not something that I typically, I, I don't really seek out games that I can play with other people, at least not online. Sometimes I have an appetite for co- couch co-op, and, and that's really dependent on you know whether I have someone to sit on the couch with me uh, to play the game. And, and but in general, video games just do not hold my interest for whatever reason. It it is one of those things where if it does not captivate me with like either the world that they have built, or maybe the story, um, or more likely the music, the soundtrack. It's usually either the world or the soundtrack that captivates me. And if they if they don't get me on one of those two things, then they're probably going to lose me because um, I have a brain that just sort of has other, you know, like I, I know what I want to do in, in a moment, and a lot of times it's not playing a video game. So I'll try to force myself to play a video game, and then I get distracted. So yeah, it's just, it's it's a weird thing. I want to like video games more than I do. And I definitely like them theoretically because I've always been around video games my entire life. Uh, I've always been around gaming in general. And 
and it's just it, it it seems to be just up to up to fate as to what sort of captures my attention uh, and and earns earns my obsession i guess so that's that's that i was not talking about video games just to be clear um I mean, and I've got nothing, again, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with video games. I, I actually quite like video games, and I've said this in the past. With video games, I feel like, well, you know what? Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll say it, because I've said this in the past, so I don't want to go on too too long about it. But video games, I I view them as an appliance. I view them as a, as a product that you purchase and you use as they are provided to you. Now, traditionally, for me, that means get a console and play your video games on the console, and that, that's just kind of the, that's the amount of effort I want to put into video games. Uh, if you're talking about firing up Wine and trying to hack things and move DLL files around so that they work correctly on Wine, that's too much trouble for me. I, I'm not that into video games to try to force them to work. So I prefer to actually just game on a console because it's a brainless, you know, you just, it is, it's that easy. Now, in theory, I want all video games to be open source because video game culture is important. Culture is important. And video game has defined, well, certainly at least one generation and is working on defining another. So it's important that that video games persist, that we have that we have a history of, of video games. And right now, the video game companies are leaving that job up to people who are, technically speaking, working outside of the law. They could get in trouble for producing emulators and for preserving ROMs and things like that. So I think that that really needs to stop. I think there should just be a blanket policy after, I don't know, 10 years of a video game having existed, I think it should fall into the public domain or something, or become open source, preferably, like, actually licensed. And and then people could learn from the code, but more importantly, they can preserve the code, because it's just so important. As we've seen, I mean, we're seeing documentaries on Netflix now, and uh, in other places on TV and Z, um, there are documentaries about video games and video game culture and all this other stuff. I mean, people, it's important to people. It makes a big difference. So I, I don't think that that should be left to chance. But in practice, I realize that video games are purely an entertainment uh, device, and it's expensive to make video games. It really is. So they, they've got to be, there has to be a, a business pipeline for that to work uh, in the way that video games are being made. And, and I'm okay with that, in other words. I, I don't really actually... That is not something... They're, 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 the, the amount of user data being created by video games I don't think is sufficient enough to sort of argue that, oh, it needs to be open source, actually. It, it, and, and, the, and it's not a requirement. You don't have to have video games in your life. It's not one of those things where, well, if I don't have this video game, then I can't file my taxes or something like that. So I have no problem with video games being black boxes. I just think that eventually that black box needs needs to be opened, and it needs to be something that people can preserve. So there's my thoughts on video games, if you hadn't heard. I've done episodes about this um, periodically over the past decade, I guess, because I, I really had to come to terms with sort of this concept of, uh, of, of how software and, and games kind of relate to one another. Okay, so the final bit of listener feedback I've got is not really listener feedback, Taj, my friend Taj, on uh, from Hacker Public Radio and from uh, Dev Random, I guess, um, said uh, had contacted me over Mastodon and said that Hacker Public Radio and GNU World Order were on the front page of Hacker News, which is kind of funny. Uh, so I went to Hacker News, which is of course YCombinator.com. That's Y C O M B I N A T O R.com, and it's a um, it's a news site. You could uh, you can check in on it, and and people post links to things that they have found online, and then people go to the links, and then well, they theoretically go to the links, and then they comment about it. And uh, apparently, someone posted about GNU World Order back on five days ago from now, so that would have been uh, December. Um, uh, Eight, I guess. Seven. Seven, sorry. Seven or eight. I guess it depends on, on whose time zone we're in. And, um, and, and people, I, I couldn't get sort of, so the, the conversation seemed to, to be mostly about the website. Which is funny because most people don't go to gnuworldorder.info. That is not, I don't think, I mean, if I'm wrong, dear listener, tell me. But I, I feel like most of my listeners just subscribe to the RSS feed and, and listen to the show. I don't feel like, a lot of the 
traffic goes to the website. And if it does, that's um, that's a pity because I don't put a whole lot of effort into the website. I put a couple of links and a couple of show note items in there, but that's really about it. Uh, it people seem to be confused about what the site is um, until some people in the comments explain that it is a podcast. People seemed to get sort of eventually they got to the point where they accepted that, I think. Um, it was a funny conversation, and if you want to go read it, uh, you can. It's ycombinator.com, or just do a, a search for GNU World Order and then Hacker News, and I guess it'll probably show up eventually. Um, I did go on there eventually after I after Taj told me about it. I went on there and made one or two comments um, about some, some funny things that people were saying about some of the website design. Some people had real issues with the website designs and other people had sarcastic issues with the website design and it was quite funny to to witness so yeah that was um that was a thing i have no idea how that affected traffic or anything because i don't monitor that so i don't, I don't know if i got a big boost in the listenership or just a temporary boost or no boost at all i kind of suspect nothing i get the feeling that that's probably the situation where where people see the link maybe they click on it maybe they don't they probably don't explore it very far. It just doesn't seem to me like it's one of those things where people probably do a lot of research before commenting. But I mean, you know, that's not just that website. That's that's the internet. People comment, and that's what they do. And it is kind of funny, I think, to see some of the comments, if I may sort of step outside of this for a moment. I mean, I, I kind of can't because it is about my thing. But if I may imagine that I could, then I would probably look at this as a really fascinating reaction to what I kind of think of as the real internet, like the the internet that I'm a part of. And it, it seems like people don't recognize it. They let me see if I can pull a choice quote to represent what I'm trying to. Well, here's here's some here's someone correcting people or or explaining it for people. And this rather than choosing comments that express confusion, maybe this will... You, you can imagine some of the other comments that would have inspired this one. So this is from DJMC Merlin. This is a little tidbit of the internet that is not Web 2.0, JS, React, ad-infested, and people are hating on it. This is me, again, Klaatu. Um, so it seems that, that some people don't quite understand sort of like why someone would design a site that is just pure HTML, which which surprises me on a, a site called Hacker News. Like, that, that honestly does surprise me. But people are different. People have different views of what the internet should look like. It was just kind of interesting to, to see how confused some people seem to be about there being sort of an independent, self-standing website out there with content that exists outside of any wider system. I'm not on Spotify. I mean, I might be, but not not because I put myself there. I'm not on... Well, I am on... I'm listed in the iTunes directory. I'm listed in bl blueberry.com or whatever it is. But yeah, I'm not... I don't... The show isn't sort of a member of a network it isn't a it isn't a thing with a bunch of ads on it yeah it's it is just a show that exists on the internet and that seems to confuse this particular crowd which is interesting and i guess a little bit in a way not not profoundly but it's a little bit sad because this is what the internet should be in my eyes like that that's the internet that i'm interested in is the one where it's individuals creating things that interest them and that's different than an internet built around big brands with marketing goals and and all of those things that 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 big sites seem to have not that i'm opposed to the big sites necessarily i i like some internet sites that are big and important and have professional uh, a veneer of professionalism and and things like that but i think it's important to maintain this aspect of the internet because that was the advantage of the internet but i guess the internet has it it has largely fallen into the hands of of very large entities whatever they may be and sometimes that's fine sometimes it's important you need big entities sometimes to provide consistent accurate information that sort of thing but there, there's it's important to maintain the casual individual side as well and thank you dear listener for uh, for supporting that because if you're listening to my show you're you're a part of that as well. We all are. We're building this together. See, we are a community. Okay, so um, let's go get some coffee together as a community, and we'll come back and talk about SQLite.
SQLite. Let's talk about SQLite. SQLite is a database, and you may know nothing about databases, and you, you yet know that databases are a big topic. It's very difficult to have a short conversation about databases, and that's not really truly because databases are that complex. It is because, like so many other things in computing, the, the potential for what you can do with this tool is practically limitless. And so casual conversations about a database turn into something much, much larger than expected because all of a sudden you're talking about all of these potential things and all the different ways you could use to accomplish this task, and, and suddenly it becomes a big conversation. So I, I don't want to make you think, if you're not familiar with databases, that this is a big scary topic. This is just a database. It's not a big deal, but the sliver of information I'm about to give you is just that. It's just the basics of SQLite, and certainly with some creativity you could do well, all manner of things with, with the database. I saw a talk at the LinuxConf AU uh, technical conference in Christchurch here in New Zealand. I guess it was two years ago now? Or was it just one year? One or two years ago now. And at this conference, there was a talk given on using a database as your file system. They literally hacked a database such that the, all of the, 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 their, the Linux that they installed that wrote all data to to a database instead of like a file system like ext4 or butterfs or uh, xfs or jfs or whatever completely crazy completely nuts didn't work out did not work out as as well as well i don't think they had any hopes but it their conclusion was that it was not a good idea but that's that's kind of to give you an idea of just the potential of database okay so a database um let's just really start from the very very beginning a database stores information and it does so in a structured way and in a database and i'm just to warn you i am not a database person i'm not a dba i don't know anything about databases except the stuff that i know from from using them both as a user and sometimes as a, um, a a novice coder. So talking about SQLite, for instance, or databases even. So databases, they typically store information in entities that we call records. And each record can have a set amount of information in it. And the more structured your database, the more information about the information you need to provide your database engine. So if we think of a really, really basic database, and this is probably, someone will probably tell me that this is unfair and incorrect, but I'm going to do it anyway, because I think it's a useful analogy. If we think of a database, we could imagine, I'm going to do a fake db dot, actually I'm going to do fake dot db. I'm going to open up a, a text file called fake dot db. I'm opening it in Emacs as we speak. And then I'm going to, I'm going to put, I'm going to create my first record. And in my database, in my super simple database, I'm going to say that my database, each line is a record. This is not unheard of. Uh, we'll do penguin, and then I guess we'll do semicolon, and we'll do emperor. And then the next line, and, and maybe we'll do, um, we'll pretend like we know where these species are found, and we'll say that the emperor penguins are found. Let's pretend like they're in Peru, which they may be for all I know. I don't know. Um, so that's where we'll, that's where we'll put them. And then the next line will be in a new record, and we'll say penguin semicolon, uh, little blue, this one I know very well, semicolon, New Zealand, and so on. So each line in this super simple database is a record, and each record contains some number of fields, and in this particular case, the number of fields are three, because it's penguin, the, so the species of the animal that we're talking about, emperor, the, uh, the name of the animal, and then Peru, or New Zealand, or whatever, and that's the location of the animal. So that's three fields that we have in our in our database. And we could process that database with some application like awk, or grep, or cut, or a combination of all those things, or a combination of some of those things. And to give ourselves even more tools when we were, when if we were we to actually process this, which we're not going to do because this isn't an episode about awk, but if we, if we wanted to, we could give ourselves more context. So for instance, maybe in square bracket, at the beginning of each field, we could put um, str for string. That would be kind of boring, actually, because all of these are strings. But let's pretend like we had, I don't know, a postcode or something. Then we could say, well, this, is, this one's going to be an integer. 
and it's uh, 90023. I don't know, just making up numbers here. This is going to be an integer. Uh, 6055, five, that sort of thing. So you could have added information about each field so that when you were processing the information in your database, you could have a little bit of extra uh, information about what you're about to process. Now, if you wanted to, you could write an awk script, for example, to process this data, and you could you could enter logic into your awk script to, for instance, gather together all of the animals that appear in New Zealand. And you would do that by, by having a check in there somewhere for that third field, or what, whichever field it was, that had the location. And if it's New Zealand, then you add it to a, a sub-list or a variable, an array, or something, and then you print that out at the end of your script, or something like that. And frankly, you could cobble something together whereby, at, at some point, you decide, well, you know what, it's a lot of typing to put in, like, things like New Zealand every single time we are entering data entry. We're entering a animal from New Zealand. What if we just had a number code that correlated, or, or maybe even a just a letter code that correlated to a, a, another file that listed all of the countries that we're actually concerned with. Because we we're only we're only documenting animals in Peru, uh, the Galapagos, New Zealand, and Tasmania. So those are only ever going to be our only choices. So we'll just have uh, you know we'll have a code, and it'll be uh, P for Peru, G for Galapagos. NZ for New Zealand and T for Tasmania, whatever. Uh, and then you could create another file that you would you, you could point awk to, and you could enter your logic such that if in the third field you encounter um, this this sequence of of letters, the substring, then refer to this file over here, grab the 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 matching code for that, and and plug in the the correct value and so on. And in that way you have a relationship between two files or two lists, two 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 databases really. And that of course is called um, a relational database. And the big deal about that is that you can build up these distinct structures of information and then refer to those structures time and time again throughout your interaction with the database relating one set of information to another. And these are really simple examples and Somewhere a DBA is shaking their head, thinking it's very charming at how simple my worldview is. Uh, and like I say, that's because I'm not really a database person. But that's that's kind of what we're working with here. That's the idea. But instead of creating your own database engine from an awk script, what you could do instead is, cre is, is use someone else's engine. Somebody else has already come up with all of these data structures and all of these, these the, the, all of the, you know, awk-like commands that you would need to uh, cull all animals from New Zealand into, into a list. Someone's already done that. And so you could use that engine. And in theory, if you learned some basic SQL or uh, structured query language commands, then you could utilize that engine to accomplish really the same thing without reinventing the wheel. And you and I probably know, dear listener, that the, the big famous open source database was MySQL. It was purchased by Oracle and subsequently forked by its creator, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, uh, into MariaDB. So we know this, and uh, I think I've already done an episode on this, haven't I? I think so. Yes, I'm sure I have. Okay, so you'll recall from the MariaDB episode that in order to use MariaDB, or MySQL, a database server has to be running. And that can be not, it's not complex, but it can, it, that's a that's a rather large dependency to be running a server in the background of your machine in order to, to, to gain certain features. Um, and, and it's, I think the, the hesitation around that is often, that, first of all, normal, quote-unquote, normal users probably don't have the necessarily the wherewithal to make MariaDB install and start on their computer reliably. Now, things like Debian probably make it really pretty easy, and this is a huge argument pro-Debian, and it's one of my main things that I don't like about Debian, but I'm pretty sure, could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that if you install MariaDB on Debian, that installs it and starts the server, and you are basically up and running. And what a great feature that is um, in this context. And I'm not being sarcastic, just to be clear. This is, I'm, I'm actually saying, in terms of user-friendliness for a certain set of users, that's huge, because a, a Linux programmer could then, or someone delivering an application on Linux, could then just 
write that into their .deb file. Hey, this requires, for runtime, this requires MariaDB. Debian makes that happen, and then the user never knows about it, never has to think about that, and that's huge. It's a big deal. Um, but I think some people are a little bit hesitant to depend upon that because the logic I think is that well why why do I need a MariaDB or a MySQL server running throughout my entire session if all I really need it for is when I um, open when I read in a file and save out a file like those are the only times I really need that that server running otherwise I don't need the server running or, or maybe you do but only during that one application. You, you only have operations around that database while the person is running this one application. And when they close that application, kind of feels weird to keep that server running, that sort of thing. Now, in real life, this is not a big deal. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm coming up with sort of the reasons that people feel funny about things, knowing full well that, number one, I'm one of those people, and then number two, that it doesn't actually matter that much. Because, I mean, CUPS, the printer server, is often, more often than not, running in the background of all of our computers all the time. And I say more often than not because uh, until very recently it was never on on my computer. I would turn it on on demand. But now I have a printer that's actually hooked up to my desktop pretty much all the time, so I actually do run it by default. But you get what I'm saying. Like, the Linux operating system, is it has a great IRQ. It knows how to start and stop things. And to, it rather, um, it knows it knows how to allot priorities to things. So it's not a big deal. It's I'm just saying that when evaluating what you feel that you need for an application, uh, that's a thing that some people think about. SQLite is famously a lot, lot simpler than that. It does not require a server to be running anywhere. It is a, essentially an on-demand database. It uses a single file. It just puts everything into one file, and that is your database. So it, it is highly portable. You don't have to do like a MariaDB or a MySQL dump of the database. You just, you just take the .db file with you, and that is your, that's your database. You fire up SQLite against that database on a different computer, same experience. So it's, it's really, really quite nice. It is also, um, I guess a little bit simpler than MariaDB, uh, I'm, I've been told. I haven't really noticed much of a difference. Um, the syntax is different, so you'll, you'll, you'll notice that. And, uh, what we'll do in this episode is we'll go through some of the SQLite commands just natively within an SQLite prompt, which in real life is probably not how you're going to be using SQLite. And I mention this because a lot of times when we're learning these kinds of technologies, we are, it is demonstrated to us in a way that the the use case is not clear. So I'm telling you right now that I'm going to be going through SQLite stuff in an SQLite prompt because that's a way to get familiar with the language that SQLite uses to accomplish tasks. In real life, if you are developing an application that uses SQLite, you're not going to be using the SQLite interactive prompt because your application doesn't, you, you wouldn't want to fire up, like just do external commands outside of your application all the time. I mean, you could probably, but generally speaking, what, what really happens, you'll find, is that your application of choice has some kind of library to interact with SQLite. So you won't be using SQLite directly. You'll be you, you'll be telling Lua or Python or Java or whatever it is you're programming in. You'll be telling it to perform some SQLite action and and that will happen um, f- sort of without invoking SQLite directly yourself. Okay. So let's get started. We're going to do an SQLite 3 uh, example db. By doing that, you're creating a database called example.db, and you are entering an interactive SQLite prompt. And notice that I did type in SQLite3. That's the command, uh, at least on Slackware, that's the command to, to use SQLite. I don't know when it sort of became SQLite3 versus SQLite2. If there was an SQLite2, I'm not sure... Uh, I think ever since I sort of knew that I could use SQLite 3, uh, I was using SQLite 3, so I don't remember how often that, I don't know how often that's going to change or how significant that number is, or even even if it is on all installs. But on Slackware, that's what, that's the command. Um, now it tells us SQLite version 3.13, so this is quite old, 2016, 05.18 is when it was built, I, I guess. And uh, it tells us that we can enter .help for hints. And so you can do that, you can enter just dot h-e-l-p return and then it, it tells you the commands that are available and you can kind of look through there if, if you're if you're used to interacting with a database like MariaDB 
you can kind of get a feel for actually what what is available here. For instance, here's a dot tables command. So if I type in dot tables against the file, the active file now, which is example.db, if you'll recall, then it returns nothing. And the reason it's returning nothing is because, well, in fact, there is nothing. There are no tables here. We haven't we haven't created anything. So let's create one, and I'll I'll try to follow a little bit the the same example that I did in the MariaDB episode. It, it won't be exact, but I'll try to stick to it a little bit, where we, we were listing people, Alice, Bob, Carol, and David, and I think we ended up listing uh, what distribution they used. And then we th the way that we, we married those two together was that we used a... Uh, we, we joined two tables together to figure out which distribution what person used, or something like that. We'll mimic that a little bit, just so that the two database episodes ha have some similarities. So the MariaDB episode I've just checked is 374, so if you want to listen to that. And this one together, that's that's what you're looking for, 374. Almost exactly 10 episodes ago, but actually 11. So what we're going to do is create a table, and the command for that you will recognize from the MariaDB episode because it is exactly the same one. It is create table. Now you can you can just do create table, but there is a safer one to use, which is if not exists and then and then create the table. That just keeps you from creating a table over a, a table that already exists. So we're gonna call this table member. So what I have here is create table if not exists. And all that is in capital. And then in lowercase, I'm putting member, because that's the name of my table. And then I'm going to do parentheses, and we'll call this one name, because that'll be the person's name. And the data type here is just going to be text, so T-E-X-T. And we could put a little constraint on here and say that it cannot be null with the keywords not space null. That's that, that again... You'll, you'll remember that from MariaDB. There are five different data types in SQLite 3. That includes integer for a number, real for a floating point number, null for nothing, text, T-E-X-T for just text, and then blob for binary data. So if you were going to insert a picture, like a, an image, into a database, you would use the blob data type. Okay, so we're still creating this this table here. And then I've got here a start date. I think I was in MariaDB. I was trying to highlight the different kind of data types that you had available to you. SQLite 3 doesn't have a specific data type for date and time. Or rather, I guess technically it doesn't have a storage class for date and time. And instead it encodes a date and or time stamp in one of three different ways. Either as text, either text, real for floating point, or integer. And it kind of depends on how you enter it as to how SQLite encodes it. Functionally, that's probably not going to ever matter to you because SQLite is really good about converting from one to the other. But just know that there is no, you know, if you're thinking of MariaDB and SQLite 3, MariaDB has literally a timestamp data type, whereas SQLite 3 does not. It is just going to treat your date as either text, integer, or uh, real, but we can enter. So start date is the name of the the field, and then I'm going to put date as the as the the type of data that we're storing, and we're going to just let SQLite figure out what it has to do based on what we feed it. And in this particular case, I'm not even going to actually feed it a whole lot. I'm going to just get it to auto update on its own, and we'll do that by doing date uh, default, and then we'll tell it to uh, what is it? Cheating, 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 current underscore timestamp. I wonder if that'll work. That might not work, but we'll find out. Current underscore timestamp. And I think that's everything. I think that's everything that we had in the in the MariaDB example. So I'm going to terminate the parentheses with a closing brace or bracket, whatever, and then terminate the whole statement with a semicolon and then hit return. And there we go. Again, no errors, so I must have done something right. And that's good. That means we have a table, and we can view that table such as it is with the dot .table, dot .table, dot .tables, it doesn't matter. Dot .table or dot .tables uh, demonstrates, or, or shows in this case, the, 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 the solitary table that we do have, which is, of course, member. And now we can insert data into that table, just as we did with MariaDB. So insert, that's all capitals, into member, and we'll say, let's do name parentheses name, values, all capitals again, 
and then we'll tell it the values that we want to insert the, the value that we want to insert so values parentheses quote Alice close quote close parentheses terminate that line with a semicolon and once again that works no errors and I can keep doing that for Bob and then I can do the same thing for Carol and then there's David so now I've inserted four names into this into this table and I should be able to see what I've just inserted with a select so select s-e-l-e-c-t select and I'll do a star to to as a wild card for all of, all all of the things from member semicolon and it returns in a nice little ASCII table here for me the values for Alice which was entered on today's date at 0149.11 and then Bob entered today's date at 0150.11 Carol today's date 0150.16 and David 0150.20 so let's create another table for our Linux distributions that these people are going to use and then we'll, we'll insert data into it a little bit differently we'll do it all in one go so to create the table we know that already so create table if not exists parentheses or not parentheses we have to name the table Linux and then parentheses distro and that'll be text and we won't allow it to be empty so not null and I think that's everything that we, we need for this little table and that's gotten created now so if I do a dot table command again I see that there are two tables now in my database Linux and member and now I can insert I in sert insert into Linux linux and then parentheses into the distro field or the column whatever we are calling these entities Linux distro um, and then values and then in parentheses we can do uh, we'll do slackware close quote close parentheses comma uh, parentheses quote rel close quote close parentheses comma parentheses fedora uh, quote fedora close quote close parentheses comma parentheses quote debian close quote close parentheses and we don't need a comma but we do need a semicolon and it says that's okay too I can verify this of course with select asterisk from Linux semicolon and it lists that for me slackware rel fedora debian just as anticipate so everything's been entered there okay so now we want to we want to come up with some reason for joining these two tables and the reason that we used in the MariaDB one is because we're recording which distro each person uses but we don't want to have to type in the name of the distro for each person every time we're doing our data entry especially because for for things like um, well slackware uh, you might enter it as slackware one day and then slack uh, the next day because you've forgotten that you're not using short names rel you could you, maybe you type it in red hat enterprise linux and then someone else comes along and says oh rel okay r h e l so you you have inconsistencies if you if you just leave it up to uh, up to humans to try to come up with consistent entries um it, it would it could be prone to typos you just accidentally debian just d b e i a n instead of d e b i a n and so on this is similar but not exactly the same as MariaDB. It it'll it's just similar enough to confuse you. So it's alter table all in caps, which is exactly what it was in in member uh, in in MariaDB, uh, and then member and then add add. This is where it starts to branch off into into its own realm. So we'll just do add and then os integer semicolon. So in MariaDB, you had to add a column specifically and specify the column name and the data type here you simply add and then you specify the column name and the data type so that's it's a little bit of a simpler 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 command so now if I do a um, well I guess we'll, we'll insert values now is what we'll do I was gonna I was gonna look at the table but I don't think that would be very interesting because we haven't actually put data into our new column so we'll just we'll insert the, the data instead so we're gonna do um, we're gonna update member and we're gonna set set the os to equal one where name equals quote alice close quote semicolon so we are all in one go we're updating the table which table member what are we doing we're setting the value of os to one as long as the, the value of the name is alice so we're selecting a, a record based on a requirement which is the name being alice if that is true then we're setting os to one and you can do that for each person so we'll do um we'll do update member set os to uh three where the name is bob and David and then we're gonna set the OS to four when the name is
Miss Carol. And now we should be able to come up with a statement to join these two tables together based on the uh, the the value in the OS field and the unique identifier assigned to each distribution. Now you may notice, you may recall from 11 episodes ago, I was talking about MariaDB and how some DBA had once told me, given me sagely advice to to always assign a unique identifier to all of your entries into a database. And so in MariaDB, I did that very specifically. Remember, we created an ID field or an ID column, and we made it an auto-incrementing column, and so on. But in SQLite, I have skipped that step. And that's because SQLite does that for you anyway. So there is a hidden value to each record that you create within your table, and the value is, is designated with the keyword row ID, R-O-W-I-D. So we could we can look at that if we want. Select row ID from Linux, semicolon, and there's one, two, well, I guess, yeah, well, let's do that. Or we could say, you know, select um, uh, row ID comma distro from Linux. And then we can see one Slackware, two rel, three Fedora, four Debian. So it's already, and we could do the same thing with member. So if I do like row ID comma name, just to give us some context here. Oops, darn it, what did I hit? There you go. Uh, then one Alice, two Bob, three Carol, four David. So we, we get, fr uh, for free, we get auto-incrementing row unique identifiers for each row. So we can use that in our select, in our join statement. And we can do a select star from member. So we'll just take every member record and we're going to do an inner join. That's I-N-N-E-R join, uh, I-N-N-E-R space join, inner join, Linux on member.os equals Linux.os row ID. So what we're doing here is we're saying, I want to do an inner join where the, the where these things are the same. Show me the results of Linux and the constraints that we're placing all this, uh, this join between member and Linux is that the member.os, the OS column in the member table, must be equal to the row ID on the Linux table. I'll hit return, and what I get back is Alice, the date, and then her OS choice 1, that is Slackware. Bob, date 3, Fedora. Carol, 4, Debian. David, 3, Fedora. And those are all listed, so 1, 3, 4, 3, those are, are listed as Slackware, Fedora, Debian, and Fedora. So now we know how to create tables, we know how to create, or, or rather, insert uh, data into those tables, we know how to alter tables, and how to join tables according to um, requirements that we, we specify in, a, in an SQL statement. Obviously there's a lot more that you can do with SQLite 3 or any database, but that's the, that's the, the quick overview of it, and the general style of how to think about what you need to do. It's a pretty handy little database. Like I say, it's extremely portable. Everything's contained in a file. It's, it's really, really useful. It's very fast. There are lots of little conveniences that it does that you don't really have to think about because it's just doing it for you. And it's good. It's a, it's a nice little open source, public domain, technically database, and you you will famously see it in all kinds of technology. SQLite 3 ships with so many things, m several times it's not even in any way credited because it is, um, the, the author sort of mistakenly, um, he's, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've read in, a, in an interview with him that he, he realizes that public domain was not the correct license for, for SQLite or for anything, um, but I guess when he released it, he didn't know the subtleties of that sort of thing. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've heard that. Um, it's Dr. Richard Hip is the, is the author. He's the same author as um, Fossil, the version control system, which I've talked about on this show before. So uh, he's a really great guy, really smart, obviously. I've met him several times at technical conferences, and he's just a genuinely nice guy. And his database is genuinely amazing. It, it is, it's just that, that super simple bootstrapping process that you just kind of can't resist. And there's a lot of, like, there's, there's a huge argument, I think, for, for just opting for SQLite instead of, for instance, MySQL. I'm sure there are great use cases for MySQL or MariaDB over SQLite 3. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so bold as to say that SQLite 3 solves all problems. Uh, especially in something that I really don't understand, like databases. But for a lot of a lot of things that you might think, oh, I need a structured way to organize my data and then to kind of relate them back to one another, SQLite 3 is 
plenty. And and like I say, lots of different programming interfaces to SQLite 3. You'll find a SQLite 3 library or module or whatever it's called in your language of choice for whatever your language of choice is. So it is easy to interface with SQLite 3 and it's just a beautiful thing because you've got this little nice little database file that is your data. So if you're ever thinking, oh geez, I've got this, this data structure that I need to store as a save file for my user, but gosh, I don't really want to have to create my own file specification. SQLite 3 may be the thing that you're looking for. I mean, it might be something else. It might be YAML or JSON or, or something else, XML, but it, it could be SQLite 3. That might be what you're looking for based on your, your needs. I've used it as exactly that before, and I've also used it as just the back end to a little data entry, um, you know, local data entry thing for, for some record keeping stuff. And, and it's worked really well in both cases. I, I, I think it's really a, a great little database that you should absolutely check out and use it, use it where you need it because it is, it is there. It is easy to use. It is effective. It's fast. It's just really, really nice. So SQLite 3, there it is right there in Slackware. Go use it. I think that's it for this show. Thank you for listening. And please do join me as a database joke next week. Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at clatu at member.fsf.org. That's clatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. Here's some minor miracles, tangible to the touch and modest in price.